The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thanks and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. If you learned about the Civil War through the magnificent Ken Burns TV series, you've seen those moving snippets of film that show surviving elderly Civil War veterans shaking hands at the 50th anniversary reunion at Gettysburg. From evidence like that, we know that by the 20th century, veterans on both sides had learned to forgive each other and forget the political causes that brought us to war in the first place. Or had they? Caroline Janey doesn't think so, and she's written about it in Remembering the Civil War, Reunion, and the Limits of Reconciliation. We'll talk with her tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu Edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you once again from our standard location at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters on the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. <clears throat> North Carolina. But not speaking for the university or the Brewster Building or any other entity, just me for myself. My guest, likewise, will speak only for herself. That's the way we do it legally on Civil War Talk Radio. Where it has been a rough week for the Pirates since we last spoke, the football team lost uh, a 
game they probably shouldn't have, but when you fumble five times, it's hard to win, and fell out of the national rankings, uh, certainly for this season, maybe for a long time. Uh, and locally, the tradition that I think is now spread to many college towns of having a giant gathering of inebriated young people on Halloween night, uh, well, that took place, and the police were ready for it downtown, so all the students went to some neighborhood, and there they had a degree of disorder that, uh, that in retrospect, nobody is happy about. It doesn't do well for the reputation of the university, so we're not going to talk about it anymore. We talk about uh, happier things. Longtime listeners will remember the accounts over the years of the trials and triumphs of the Greenville Stars girls youth soccer teams on which both of my daughters played in their time. Uh, Since they've gone on to college and beyond, I've not been able to recapture the magic of those years, but recently have found a way to recapture the futility of some of those seasons by playing myself uh, on weekends with the Pitt-Greenville Soccer Association uh, Recreational League. Uh, my team, the Greenville FC, formed out of people who didn't have a club, so we all got put on the same leftover team. Uh, this past Sunday, played and lost our sixth consecutive game. So now we're moving into the territory where we get the lovable loser uh, dynamic happening, and I will report to you week after week how badly we do until we finally win one, and then the rejoicing can begin. Well, that's what's happening uh, on the soccer fields, but we're more interested here in what's happening in the weeks ahead on Civil War Talk Radio, which you can always find out by going to www.impedimentsofwar.org, uh, run by Mark Gaffney and kept afloat by your contributions. There's a PayPal button there where you can donate money, which is always welcome. The money, some of it goes to pay expenses, but the rest of it, indeed all of it, if I so choose, goes to my personal use for any unsupervised uh, consumption. Uh, it's not a charity. It's not tax deductible. Don't put it on your uh, on your 1040 or you'll get in trouble. What you'll find when you go to Impediments of War or to our Facebook page, also uh, kept uh, alive by Mark Gaffney's efforts, when you go there, you'll find that we have next week's show, I think still listed, but I just found out in the last day or so we have to reschedule Michael Stevenson. So no current guest is online for November 12th. And that means we have an opening for the the book about Civil War beards. I asked you to let me know if you were interested in hearing about this and got a surprising amount of email, uh, the bulk of it very much saying, why not? Uh, how much more obscure could it be than any of the other topics we've talked about over the last 11 years? So uh, I'm trying to reach the publicist. Um, I've got two books with major publishers. I don't have a publicist. i got to talk to these people and find out how they did it. Uh, get in touch with the publicist of the authors and find out uh, if they can make it on short notice and join us next week. And if not, we'll we'll do something else. After that, we're back on schedule on November 19th. Leslie Gordon 
joins us to talk about the 16th Connecticut, A Broken Regiment is the name of her brand new book just coming out. You'll be the first to hear about it. After that, it's Thanksgiving week. We'll take some time off, come back on December 3rd with Nicole Etchison and her book, A Generation at War, The Civil War Era in a Northern Community. And finally, for the fall season, before we head into the holiday break, Stephen Cushman with another brand new book, Belligerent Muse, Five Northern Writers and How They Shaped Our Understanding of the Civil War. And those writers, and this is why I'm excited about the book, are Lincoln, Whitman, Sherman, Bierce, and Chamberlain. Should be interesting. When we come back after the holidays, we'll talk to Lawrence Babbitts. Larry is uh, an old friend and colleague here at East Carolina, retired director of the Maritime Studies Program, but he also co-edited a book on historical archaeology of the American Civil War. And the week after that, uh, Mark Christ writes about Civil War Arkansas. So we've got the new year uh, moving. We're looking into the new year already. It's not even Thanksgiving yet. Those and other things, again, you can find on the website, impedimentsofwar.org. You can buy books there, too, through the uh, buy them from Amazon, but click on them through that website, and a few pennies go the way of the site, and that's a good thing. So please consider contributing to that in that fashion. Well, tonight we are talking about a book by uh, a previous guest on the show. She is Associate Professor Caroline Janey at Purdue University. And uh, Carrie, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's good to have you. I, I heard you were not feeling too well. I hope your voice is, is able to hold out tonight. I do. I have a bit of a head cold, so I apologize to the listeners ahead of time. Um, about that. Well, we will do our best to to work our way through that. Uh, so, this book is a it, on a, a well worn uh, topic over the last twenty years. Memory in the Civil War. It became, I, I would guess, maybe back in the nineties. Uh, memory started to climb up the historiography charts and become the thing everyone's doing a dissertation on and. Uh, the next thing you know, uh, it, it's it, everybody's doing memory, and now That's now memory is exactly right. Uh, so why are we going back to memory with this book? Well, this book was part of the Littlefield series. This is a series out of the University of North Carolina Press that um, has covered a variety of topics meant to be both um, synthesis and new research. So, for example, Jim McPherson had a book on the, the navies during the war, um, several other books that have come out. Um, there's a new book out by Mark Summers on Reconstruction. So it's part of, of this series that's meant to kind of look back at the past 20 or so years of scholarship and tell us both where we've been and what some of the new approaches to whatever the, the given topic may be are in the future. Well, it's uh, an interesting approach. I've was uh, hearing from some listeners recently, they pointed out, sometimes I will say on the air, uh, well, as all you will already know, and I'll, I'll state some tidbit of Civil War information, I assume, I wouldn't say I assume, I, I give credit to our listeners for being well-read, and uh, if, if I, and one of the pleasures of being on the show is you don't have to 
for example, name who were the core commanders at Gettysburg. We can assume most of the listeners could probably name them all already. But I recognize there are those who can't. Uh, My own mother, fan number one of the show, is listening. And I don't think she knows all the core commanders at Gettysburg. Uh, But a book like this, a series like this, that not only gives us what's new in scholarship, but sums up, as you say, the last 20 years, is a great way to get into it. It's a great shortcut. Instead of reading all the memory books for the last 20 years, start with yours and then uh, work back. Well, oh, that would be a nice way of, of thinking about it for sure. Um, but it was it was a, a wonderful task to look back over what historians have been writing since actually the early 1900s, how they've understood what the war meant to the war generation and to, to subsequent generations. And so it was, it was a, a wonderful mixture of reading what other scholars and other historians have said, as well as really delving into the primary sources and, and trying to find out what people at the time thought about how they were thinking about the war, how they were remembering the war. Well, just to start at the beginning, you, you open up by laying down the groundwork that the romanticized view that that is certainly popular among many people of the the blue and gray as brothers in arms respecting one another uh, during the war itself there's a lot of hatred oh visceral deep-seated hatred um, the notion that they were fighting not against their brothers but against a, a barbaric foe a savage foe um, this language comes up over and over again on both sides, um, whether we're talking Union or Confederate. And I mean, I, I think sometimes we too easily dismiss, especially when we look at those images that you, you talked about at the beginning that Ken Burns shows us of, of the veterans at Gettysburg clasping hands in 1913. We forget how, how deep-seated the loathing and hatred was in the 1860s and, for that matter, in the decades that followed. So the the romanticized view is going to follow a good bit later. Uh, you talk a, f- a fair amount in this book, uh, starting with the title. You use the two words reunion and reconciliation, and you make it clear that these are not the same thing. How, how do you distinguish them? Right. Well, reunion is something that happened. And we can debate when it happened. If we're, we're, when we say reunion, we mean the reunification of the states, the states back in the Union, back in Congress, having representatives in Congress. And, the, and so that obviously happens by the end of Reconstruction. We might term it as 1865 when the rebellion has been, been put down. So either April of 1865 or at the latest 1876, reunion has happened. The, the nation is back together with all of its some parts. Reconciliation, though, is something more difficult to define, and people at the time struggled with this as well. For some people, they described it as a, a sentiment. Some of them talked about it meaning true heartfelt forgiveness, that you forgave your former enemies. Some of them talked about it as a performance, that this is something that they had to go do for political or business reasons, that they would have to show up and partake in, in what one man called the blue-gray gush, that he knew it was a, a performance, if you will, that was necessary for political and, and economic and national um, reasonings. So reconciliation is, is a 
changes over time. It changes from person to person, and it's really hard to define. And I think so often as historians, we've, we've talked about these two things as if they're synonymous, synonymous, reunion and reconciliation. But in fact, people at the time very much differentiated between the two. Just a quick flash forward to the the present. Uh, In your own classes, do you see reconciliation or or its lack in action ever? In terms of how students understand and what what they think about the war? Well, it's really interesting. I'm I'm from Virginia. I went to the University of Virginia and taught there as a graduate student and, and then after I had finished my Ph.D. And so comparing that then to teaching students in Indiana... And there is a difference, and, and one of the things that I like to pull my classes in is, you know, what caused the Civil War and what was the war about? And inevitably, those that are from northern states um, say that slavery caused the war and the war was about emancipating the slaves. And those who, I mean, I have a few students who are from Kentucky and other, um, other parts of the South as well, and to them, the war is not about slavery, and it was about state rights. So absolutely, those sectional interpretations of the war are still very much alive and well. Now, I'm, I'm curious about that exercise. I'm going to have to try it in my uh, uh, survey class in a couple of weeks. Do you, do you give them choices, or is it an open-ended question, what was the war about? I, I usually frame it an open-ended question, and, and I do this in, in my Civil War class, and then I have a course I teach, a 400-level course, that's on Civil War memory. And so for that one, they, they know where I'm coming from at this point right. when I start asking those questions. But in the Civil War class, it's more of an open-ended question, and we end up having a discussion. They raise hands, and we have a discussion about what all of this means. That that uh, I taught as an adjunct at uh, IPFW in Fort Wayne when oh, I was yeah. uh, at, the, yeah. at the Lincoln Museum, uh-huh. and uh, just to keep my hand in while I was doing museum work. And then coming here to North Carolina, where I teach now, Definitely, I, I, I see the difference in reverse uh, that you saw going from Virginia to Indiana. Uh, the students do have a different perspective. So uh, I'm going to have to try that technique and ask them what they think. Well, well we're going to take a, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. One of the oh, greatest little essays to use, and I call it an essay, a small book, is Robert Penn Warren's Legacy mm-hmm. of the Civil War. And he wrote that in the 1960s for the centennial. And he talks about... He talks about the lost cause and the Confederate romanticization of, of, of the, the war and, and how slavery is not part of the rationale that Confederates fought. But the part that my, that my students here that are primarily from the Midwest really are captivated by is his discussion of the treasury of virtue, mm-hmm. that Northerners are somehow morally superior to Southerners because they freed the slaves. And he debunks that myth. And that's that's always a really great assignment to get them to think about how their present generation still you know, perpetuates these myths and relies on these myths and how it shades how they view other parts of the country to this day. Well, that, that, I, that's a great suggestion. I, I, I agree with you. It's a wonderful essay, and I will have to definitely give that a try. We're going to take a short break now. We're going to come back in just a moment, talk more with Caroline Janey, author of Remembering the Civil War, Reunion and the Limits of Reconciliation. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. 
the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Our guest today Caroline Janey, author of Remembering the Civil War, Reunion and the Limits of Reconciliation. In the first section, we talked a little bit about the uh, memory of the Civil War and how that uh, has changed over time, and uh, starting with the fact that when the war was underway, there was no, uh, no as uh, Carrie, as you put it, uh, one of your, your sources put it, no blue-gray gush, no sentimental uh, talk about reunion and, and, and reconciliation. There was a, a great deal of hatred during the war. Uh, that changes over time. Uh, one of the challenges you offer to the established historiography on this topic is the idea that Immediately after the war, from 1865 for the next, say, 15 years, the veterans in particular did not say or write or want to think much about it, that the memory went into to hibernation, more or less. Uh, uh, Gerald Linderman, who uh, I, one of my professors when I was undergrad at University of Michigan many years ago, uh, uh, makes that argument in Embattled Courage. Right. Uh, Right. You say no, that the, there was no hibernation of memory for 15 No, years. No, there's not a hibernation. In fact, um, both Unionists and Confederates, former Confederates, are working very hard in those years immediately following Appomattox to establish um, what the war was about, what the war meant to them. The Grand Army of the Republic, which would become the largest of the Union veterans' organizations, and there were a lot of different organizations, but it was by far the largest 
was organized in 1866 and by 1868 had established um, Memorial Day um, on May 30th. In the South, uh, white Confederate men recognized that it probably wasn't the best idea for them to take the lead in memorializing their cause. And so, so in the South, what happens is women's organizations um, under the banner of Ladies Memorial Associations form in communities uh, scattered across the former Confederacy where they create cemeteries and eventually the, the practice actually very quickly, even before the Union veterans do, of Confederate Memorial Day. Now, Confederate veterans don't really become active in um, creating organizations or even um, publications until the 1870s, until Reconstruction has been rolled back. But the 1865 to 18 80 is hardly a dormant period in the memory of the war. You mentioned the role of women in the Southern memorialization, and you've written about this elsewhere. The, on the one hand, one can see an almost diabolically clever strategy uh, since women are, are still put on a pedestal in middle-class society, are still above the hurly-burly of politics, Anything they do to memorialize the dead is just, uh, you know, womanly virtue uh, being being nurturing. It's not political, and of course, it's intensely political. Intensely political, and they they recognize this, and there's a reason that they are constantly. I mean, literally at at Memorial Day um, observances, former Confederate officers are standing up saying, "These women are not political." Uh, they, I mean, they they literally say that, and, and it's mm-hmm. sort of a vowed off protest too much, right? If they have to point out that these women aren't political, it's probably because they recognize that the memorialization that they're engaged in is intensely political. And Northerners recognize this immediately. Newspapers from Chicago to New York to places in between very quickly condemn the treasonous and those are the words they use, treasonous activities of women putting flowers on the graves of Confederate soldiers. They see it as keeping alive this intense passion and patriotism for the Confederate cause. Northerners recognized that during the war, both Confederate men and women believed that Confederate women were essential to the Confederate cause, and that continues in the war's aftermath. Confederate women are held up as absolutely key to defending hearth and home in the white south and and yet you can't uh attack them uh you, you can't make them stop uh the way the way you could if, if men were parading you could arrest them and throw them into jail uh you can't really do that with women without but in, violating in fact, actually the men are parading and the men are having it's one of the um one of the most unreal um scenes that 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 we might imagine is in the fall of 1866, the Women's Association in Winchester, Virginia, decides that they want to disinter Turner Ashby, who was buried at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville in 1862 during the war. They want to disinter his remains and reinter them in Winchester. He wasn't from Winchester. There was no reason that his remains should be there other than they thought that that would be a nice symbol for their cemetery. Uh, their, sim- their cemetery is called the Stonewall Jackson Cemetery. So choosing these men as representative of defenders of the valley. And there's this unbelievable procession 
that looks like a military procession, members of Stonewall Brigade and Elsie's Brigade, Sons Insignia, but marching from Charlestown, West Virginia, all the way down um, to to Winchester, Virginia, it looked like a military parade. But when they're critiqued, they say, hey, this is under the auspices of women. This can't be political. This is simply us mourning our dead. And so Northerners recognize this. Um, And when military reconstruction is put into place in 1867, it depended on who the commander was at different places. Uh, General Schofield happens to be in charge of military district number one, which is Virginia, and he doesn't issue any um, specific proclamations about what can and cannot be done for Memorial Days. But elsewhere, um, in New Orleans and elsewhere, there are uh, restrictions put on these women's organizations. They're not allowed to participate in Memorial Days. They're not allowed to have Confederate in the title of any of their organizations. So... They try to hide behind the skirts of women, if you will. Uh, women aren't passive. They're certainly not passive players in this. They, they are very much part of this. But Northerners quickly figure it out, too. And, and that, uh, the, the metaphor you say, the men, to some extent, are hiding behind the, the skirts of the women to, to conduct this political activity. That eventually wears on the the Confederate men, uh, like Jubal Early, they, they right. finally get to a point where they will speak for themselves. Right. By the 1870s, um, when Reconstruction has, has been essentially repealed, um, former Confederate officers and soldiers, such as Jubal Early, come forward and say, essentially, thank you ladies very much. We appreciate the work that you've done. We can handle it from here. In some places, that's precisely what happens. Um, that certainly happens in the Valley of Virginia, in Stanton, and elsewhere. But in, in some locales, like Richmond, Virginia, where there are some very strong-willed women who have been integral to Confederate memorialization up to that point, stand their ground and say, absolutely not. We're the ones who have done this so far. We will continue to be the ones doing this. And they very much hold the purse strings. They're the ones who are capable of doing a lot of the fundraising that the men can't do. And so when it comes time for the, um, the, the monument that we now know as the Lee Monument on Monument Avenue in Richmond, erected in 1890, the men start that organization, but they eventually have to go to the women and ask for their assistance. They can't manage to, to, to pull it off on their own. So we've got this sort of covert or, uh, you know, slightly hidden memorialization or open memorialization, but but uh, hidden political activity going on. Uh, but we eventually get to the point of the Ken Burns uh, uh, film where he shows the bits of film of, of veterans shaking hands. By the 1880s, certainly by the 1890s, you do have uh, reunions of blue and gray veterans together. You do uh, see signs of reconciliation. How how does this movement take place? Well, I should point out that the blue-gray gatherings that happen are the exception rather than the norm, meaning that they don't happen as frequently as the Ken Burns images would have us to believe. Most of the time that veterans are getting together, they're meeting in their local posts or camps or in state or regional groups with other Confederates or with other Union veterans. And in fact, the University of Mississippi, um, their, their Civil War Center has a fabulous 
resource on the internet that lists the known blue-gray gatherings. And between 1876 and 1900, there are only 10. And there are countless, countless gatherings of Union veterans or Confederate veterans alone. So the fact that they're exceptional is the reason that they get so much publicity in the newspapers, that newspapers just fall all over themselves to report on the blue-gray clasping of hands. So we do need to keep in mind that they're covered and they're, they're promoted because they are exceptional. Well, this brings us to another challenge to the historiography, uh, and I think perhaps a central one of your book, which is uh, David Blight's argument of, of race and reunion, that by 1900, the North and South, the white North and white South have agreed to reconcile, to recognize one another's bravery, and both to accept white supremacy as the, the law and custom of the land, and to essentially forget about the fate of the freedmen, uh, the former slaves, that, and, and thus they can shake hands at Gettysburg. They, both sides agree to forget what the war is about, to forget that slavery had ever happened, and uh, to, to move forward with the Jim Crow era. You don't buy that. I don't. And I think part of it is a matter of timing and a matter of separating out the difference between slavery and race. And let me start with that latter point. Sure. I think so often that we have conflated um, people being anti-slavery with somehow being pro-civil rights. And what I mean specifically in, in regard to Union veterans is Union veterans did not forget that the war to save the Union had ultimately also emancipated more than three and a half million slaves. They never forgot that. In fact, if anything, over the course of the latter part of the 19th century, they emphasized ending slavery as more and more important rather than forgetting it. They knew that slavery had caused the war, and in order to put the nation back together, to put the Union back together, slavery had to be quelled. And so for them, union and emancipation went hand in hand. And if we look at speeches, if we look at writings, at regimental histories, we find well into the 20th century that union veterans are not forgetting that the war that they fought was a war to end slavery. That does not mean, however, that they were racial liberals. That doesn't mean that they wanted civil rights for African Americans. Slavery and and race, again, were two different things. One could want slavery to be ended and not want African-American men to have the right to vote or to sit next to their white wives on a, a railroad car. The two were fundamentally different things. So that's, that's one area in, in which I hope my book kind of addresses this question. The other is that reconciliation was not built on the backs of African-Americans meaning that reconciliation was not primarily about white supremacy for the the Union veterans and Confederate veterans and the women's groups that I looked at. In fact, segregation was implemented, was being implemented, rather, well before the real push for reconciliationist um, pageantry was underway, and Reconstruction had certainly been rolled back before reconciliationist attempts 
are, are the heyday. So I think if we, we look at the timing and we separate out slavery and race and we look at what the veterans are saying, we find a much different story. Well, when you talk about the veterans not not conflating race and slavery, uh, Barbara Gannon has a very interesting book, uh, The One Cause, yes, uh, yes. about uh, Union veterans, and, and, and listeners will remember her uh, talking about this on the show. It, it, and she points out that there were GAR posts that were integrated, and there were those that weren't, and, and that, uh, uh, that, that, that somehow the, the white veteran soldiers could could hold these two attitudes uh, simultaneously that we would find baffling. Absolutely. I mean, and Barbara's absolutely right that, that there were integrated posts, there were posts of, of just African-Americans and African-Americans in integrated posts held office. They marched alongside white veterans in Memorial Day parades and other sorts of events of that nature in reunions. So... It was one thing veterans could could talk about the fact that these men had fought and they had fought valiantly and courageously, but that didn't mean that they necessarily thought they should have civil rights. Again, the two don't necessarily go hand in hand. So, really, a, a sharp contrast there. Uh, what about the the African American soldiers themselves? What was their perspective on reunion and reconciliation? Well, for them, the war, of course, was always about ending slavery where for white Union veterans, it was a mixture of what was Union first and foremost, but ending slavery was central to preserving the Union. For USCT soldiers, you know, ending slavery was first and foremost on their agenda, and that is always how they remembered the war well into the 20th century. You always see slavery coming before Union, although they understood that Union was paramount um, in the grand scheme of things. What's really interesting, though, are some of the debates that go on within the African-American community about um, whether or not slavery itself should be remembered. Um, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a terrific instance in which um, the African-American community comes together from throughout the nation. Leaders come from throughout the nation, meet in Richmond in the 1880s, and they're trying to decide whether there should be a national Emancipation Day, the same way that there's a single Memorial Day on May 30th, should Emancipation Day fall on January 1st, the day that Lincoln's proclamation went into effect, should it fall on Juneteenth, the day in 1865 when slaves in places as far away as Texas learned of their freedom, or should it fall sometime in the fall? And there's an intense debate about what emancipation means in the first place. Is slavery something that should be not celebrated, but but triumphing over slavery, should that be celebrated, or should African Americans forget about slavery in order to look forward to the future? And so, even though, even as we talk about these divisions within white memory, there certainly were divisions within African American memories of the war as well. So, uh, the, the story is never, uh, never clear, never anything but shades of gray anywhere we look in history. Uh, certainly a lesson our students are always uh, being reminded of. Right. We're going to take another short break, and we'll come back and talk some more with Caroline Janey. She's the author of Remembering the Civil War, Reunion, and the Limits of Reconciliation. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. 
is the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Professor Caroline E. Janey of Purdue University and author of Remembering the Civil War, Reunion and the Limits of Reconciliation. Uh, Carrie, something that I wanted to ask you about because I found really interesting uh, from a historian's perspective was your discussion of the official records of the War of the Rebellion and the, the Battles and Leaders series from Century Magazine. These are two sources that anybody writing about the war uses a lot. And uh, we forget that, like any other historical source, they're not only uh, evidence of what what happened in the time that they're writing about the Civil War, but they also tell us something about the time in which they were published. Absolutely. Uh, could you talk and about that? Sure. So Battles and Leaders was a series that was produced in the 1880s, specifically meant to avoid discussions of politics of cause and consequence. So essentially limiting the discussion to what happened on the battlefield between April of 1865, or 1861, excuse me, and April of 1865. In many ways, it was a response to an attempt a few years earlier uh, to produce what turned out to be quite a, a large tome called Annals of the Civil War that did engage in heated debates, people defending their actions, uh, uh, taking the opportunity to critique one another. And so when Battles and Leaders was proposed, the editors specifically went to people and asked both Union and Confederate officers if they would contribute, and and in doing so, would they be willing to leave out any sort of um, antagonistic... um, 
instances so that, so that it very much was built on the back of reconciliation. The notion was, of course, that it would sell more widely. There was a, there was a monetary reason for doing this, but also as a, it was meant to foster a sense of, of union. It was, ironically, again, lost cause, Confederates are contributing to this that is meant to foster a sense of an American nation, precisely the thing that they had fought against during the war. The um, official records, again, something that any historian of the Civil War uses, was as well very much crafted, meant to, um, to be as objective as possible. And there were critiques that meaning they included um, Marcus Wright and other Confederates in the process of gathering up as many Confederate materials as possible. And there were critiques about the term war of rebellion. But for the most part, former Confederates thought that it was a fairly accurate accounting um, gathering of information about the war that would, in fact, confirm their side, that would confirm the notion that they had been overwhelmed by superior manpower and um, northern material, that it, in many ways, upheld the lost cause just as Union veterans anxiously awaited each of their copies to arrive in the mail because they believed it vindicated the Union cause. It, it, I mean, it's a technical work. The OR is, is you know, a collection of after-action reports and correspondence and battles and leaders that you say confines itself to accounts of the battles written mostly by the leaders. Uh, so they're, they're not about the politics of the war. They're not about what's happening in Washington or Richmond. Right. And in that sense, they parallel or set the tone for the approach the National Park Service would take in interpreting battlefields for the next uh, 100 years or so. And what I want to do is, is jump ahead to a comment I got from a, a listener uh, over the past week who read your book. And he was struck by your description of the, the centennial of the Civil War, 1961, and then the sesquicentennial, which we're, we're still uh, living through at this moment here in, in 2014. You describe the, the, the sesquicentennial as being largely left to heritage societies, local organizations, and state commissions. Uh, and uh, he... He takes issue with the implication it would be better if we had a national sesquicentennial commission, given how badly things worked out in eighteen in nineteen sixty one. Uh, well, I certainly didn't mean to imply that it would be better if we had a national sesquicentennial commission. In fact, <laughs> your listener is exactly right that it's precisely the reason that we don't have one was the debacle that the centennial commission ended up being in the midst of the civil rights movement, um, the debates over how to, to frame what the war was about. And, and certainly David Blight and others have, have written a good bit about the African-American delegate who was um, denied lodging in Charleston, South Carolina in 1961. So it's, it was no accident that there was not a national, that there is not a national and federal um, initiative to... Um, to commemorate the 150th. And so instead, it, it has. It's fallen to states. Some states have been very active. Um, Virginia and Tennessee, for example, have been quite active in putting together programming. Uh, the National Park Service 
excuse me, <coughs> I'm so sorry. The National Park Service has been very diligent. Um, places from Gettysburg to Fredericksburg to, um, you know, all, all different battlefields have engaged in this. But I certainly didn't mean to imply that there should have been a national commission. I'm not sure that that, that would have um, led, led anywhere that would have been any better than, than what is going on now. Well, you make a good point that being left up to the state, some of them have been very inclusive. I will put in a good word here for my native state of, of Michigan, which is where my correspondent is from. He, he notes there was uh, an executive order as far back as 2007 directing the, the, uh, the State Historical Commission to be inclusive and that they uh, started with meetings uh, commemorating the summit meeting of John Brown, Frederick Douglass, and uh, various African-American leaders in Detroit in 1859 and uh, carrying through various other uh, events that looked at a broad range of uh, participants and uh, were not about uh, by not about reconciliation and certainly not about the lost cause, right? Uh, as you would not expect. So uh, I, I wanted to do justice to uh, my listener, who is a historian himself, and uh, recognize Michigan's effort in that. But as you note in the book, there are. Uh, the sesquicentennial is not without controversy. There are uh, places where the lost cause argument, or, or at least the, the reconciliation argument, it, it was still being plainly he- heard in the sesquicentennial. Sure. I mean, the, the attempts to commemorate um, Fort Sumter, <clears throat> excuse me, even before that, the secession ball in Charleston in, um, let's see, what, 2010? I guess that would have been. All of those were filled with. <coughs> excuse me, my voice is starting to break down now. Uh-oh. Um, those were all filled well. with, with with controversy. So you know, it'll be interesting to see. There, there ha- It doesn't seem like there has been as much controversy in twelve, thirteen, and fourteen. But it might be interesting to see what 2015 brings us, if, um, how much focus there will be on the assassination of Lincoln, how much will be on Appomattox. Um, perhaps we've, we've moved beyond that because of some of the reaction to the secession ball and things of that nature. Um, maybe we won't see some of, the, um, some of the same reaction that we saw in 2010. It, it will be interesting, certainly in contrast to the years of the centennial with uh, with the internet, the ability of every person to have his or her own soapbox right twenty four seven there there's more room for the sort of fringe opinions to get out there, uh, but maybe they take up less space because they get dispersed uh, they get dispersed, everybody can have one. Uh, well, going back to the uh, uh, to the nineteenth century. There are so many interesting uh, moments you describe in this book, uh, just just great historical tidbits that made it really entertaining to read. Uh, you talk about the some of the seminal moments of reconciliation, for example, uh, Grant's funeral, uh, where you start to have people like uh, General uh, John Gordon. Mm-hmm. Speaking out uh, from a southern perspective in favor of reconciliation, uh, 
but at the same time, that's the era uh, that, that people are publishing textbooks in the South that, uh, that, that, that are committed to teaching a very non-reconciliationist view of the war. Right. So, so how does that work out? Well, one of the interesting things to me is that it's, it was never that reconciliation triumphed. It wasn't the only memory of the war. It wasn't, well, let me rephrase that, it wasn't the predominant memory of the war. And I think that um, is inadvertently where David Blight and others have, have led us to see that, that we either had the lost cause or we have emancipation, that there's not some sort of middle ground. And reconciliation, in fact, is one strand. And it, it was both, um, it didn't have to be at odds with sectional memories of the war, but in fact what happened is the more there were calls for reconciliation, the more each side also felt the need to defend its respective cause. So it's, I, don't, I don't think it's surprising at all that we find the um, battles and leaders and we find um, lots of forms of popular culture, whether it be um, plays or novels that, that put forward this blue-gray image um, that, that favor that at the same time that we see Union veterans and Confederate veterans, as well as their respective women's organizations, you know, standing firm in that their cause was the only righteous cause, that they, they inform one another. You know, I found it very moving in a way to read about the, the how fervently the veterans on both sides hold to their views, and the image of the old unreconstructed <clears throat> Confederate is not unfamiliar. We there are you know, songs and uh, you know to this day bumper stickers. Right. Uh, the South will rise again. You know, hell no, I ain't forgetting. Uh, I won't be reconstructed. There's there's that, but what is in some ways more moving to me, maybe because of uh, my northern origin, was how increasingly passionately and almost desperately northern veterans repeat again and again the southern cause was all wrong. It was entirely without merit. It was, we were right, they were wrong, there's no halfway about it. Uh, we're happy to shake their hand as long as they admit they were completely wrong to commit treason and attack the flag. Right. So both sides favor reconciliation, but on their own terms. <laughs> exactly. And uh, Union veterans, I think you're, you're right to point out how, how they, they struggle in many ways to make sure that their cause is heard. And one of the things that we should keep in mind are the demographics of the North versus the demographics of the South. So in the South, we know that three-quarters of um, white men of military age serve in the war, and that means that a great percentage of the population is invested in the Confederate cause, and certainly when those veterans come home, those who do come home, they very much are, are heroes, and they remain heroes for the rest of their lives. Union veterans, though, have a, a struggle, not only are they, it's, it's, it's a little less than 50% of the white male population that serves in the war. And with the increasing numbers of immigration, then the percentage of Union veterans in the northern populations becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And with issues such as the pension, other non-veterans look around and they often describe Union veterans as alcoholics or lazy and money-grubbing, and so there are all these negative 
associations with union veterans. So union veterans are fighting both to remind Confederates about what the war was about from their perspective, but also to remind um, their fellow Northern citizens what the war was about. Uh, Jim Martin's book, Sing Not War, is a great example of this, of the struggle that Union veterans faced just to be heard constantly. It, it, is, uh, it, it is something that I think is not perhaps as well known to a lot of readers how uh, how marginalized Union veterans were, uh, even right after the war, uh, in much the way we think Vietnam veterans were the first to be uh, poorly treated by civilians upon their return home. And, and in fact, right after the parades are over in 65, uh, things get bad for some Northern veterans. Right. And and the, the desperation that they, they've, well, I guess every time a student tells me, you know, the winners write the history, uh, I, I point out how the... Uh, Confederates, to the the despair of the Union veterans, won the historical battle for a century uh, in in, in keeping their version uh, alive in spite of having lost on the battlefield. Well, Carrie, I want to thank you for a a, uh, a wonderful effort tonight uh, with your voice, uh, taking time to be with us uh, despite not feeling well. And thank you for writing this really interesting and, and very readable and uh, enjoyable book that I recommend to our listeners wholeheartedly. It's called Remembering the Civil War, Reunion and the Limits of Reconciliation. Uh, its author is Caroline E. Janey. Carrie, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. It was, it was my pleasure. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.